Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Curl and Morgan. We're your co-hosts, Jason Crawford and Mono Lombardo, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. We're joined today by special guest, David Bodenheimer. David is a litigator and partner in the firm's government contracts group in DC, where he handles defective pricing and cost disputes, protest litigation, and False Claims Act suits. Nationally recognized in defective pricing matters, David has litigated over a billion dollars of alleged defective pricing in both contract and fraud claims. He also authors the Defective Pricing Handbook, which is considered the leading text on the Truth and Negotiations Act, or TINA, as government contractors know it. Welcome to the podcast, David. Well, Jason and Mana, I'm delighted to be here. I'm always glad to discuss defective pricing. Jason and I have co-litigated a four-day defective pricing trial. And we're also co-authors on an upcoming wonderful Thomson Reuters briefing paper on defective pricing in the False Claims Act. Also, Mana and I are going to be co-teaching a two-day defective pricing course in the near future on compliance and FCA risks. Uh, She'll bring her wonderful FCA experience to thrill the audience. So thanks for the opportunity. Well, great. That'll be a fun course to look forward to. And as for today, we've invited David to the podcast to discuss with us the links between defective pricing and FCA actions. Sometimes defective pricing cases explode into fraud actions. So it's important for contractors to understand what may cause an ordinary contract dispute to expand into an FCA battle. For a bit of a background, the Truth in Negotiations Act, TINA, establishes a contractual remedy via a price reduction clause. Under TINA, the contractor must submit certified cost or pricing data prior to price agreement, assuming no exceptions apply. And the agency has a contractual remedy to reduce the contract price if the agency can prove the five points of defective pricing. On the other hand, the False Claims Act, as you all well know by now, deters fraud with trouble damages and statutory penalties. So in contrast to the remedy available under TINA, a contractor or other person that knowingly submits a false claim may be subject to trouble damages and statutory penalties if the government can prove the elements of an FCA action. So despite the differences between these laws, both history and policy may explain why the government could start with a defective pricing audit and end up with a fraud claim. So before we ask David to dive into the substantive and procedural commonalities between these laws, Jason, can you provide an overview of the historical and policy parallels? Thanks, Mona, of course. The enactments of the FCA and TINA were separated by nearly 100 years, yet they bear some striking parallels. As far as the legislative history, both TINA and the FCA traced their roots to concern that military contractors were reaping windfall profits by overcharging the government under contracts awarded without competition. Moreover, there are Department of Defense policies linking defective pricing and fraud actions. Both the Defense Contract Audit Agency and the Department of Defense Inspector General include fraud on their checklist when conducting defective pricing audits or investigations. As a result, many defective pricing audits have morphed into FCA investigations or litigations or even worse, parallel TINA and FCA actions. So to begin with, David, can you guide us through the common themes that run through both the FCA and TINA's legislative histories? Sure, Jason, but let's first start with what's different. You know, as Mana said, TINA is a contract remedy, whereas the False Claims Act is a fraud deterrent. Literally, TINA was enacted in the 1960s while the False Claims Act 
was enacted in the 1860s. That's the difference between steel aircraft carriers and wooden ships. But history also tells us why the two are connected. If you put yourself back into 1861, the beginning of the Civil War, the genesis of the False Claims Act, there were three things that were happening. This was an unprecedented military ramp-up. So first, the Army started cutting red tape. That meant uh, essentially they were breaking all the procurement rules and saying, military urgency, we have to move fast. Second, they were avoiding competition. At that time, competition was the rule, but there were many sole source contracts let at the beginning of the Civil War. And three, charging excessive prices. You look at the legislative history of the False Claims Act and you see all of these references to exorbitant prices and windfall profits, license to plunder the public treasury, and my favorite of all time, the El Dorado of Army Contractors. <laughs> If you look at the parallel legislative history of TINA, you'll see many of the same themes. Inflated prices, excess profits, and, quote, deception during negotiations. Or if you look at the TINA cases themselves, you see military exigency, such as the Berlin Wall Crisis, Vietnam, the First and Second Gulf Wars. And of course, there's never any competition, because if there was, it would be a TINA exception. And finally, there's always inflated prices in a defective pricing case because if there's no inflated price, there's no defective pricing. Thanks for that historical summary, David. Now, turning to the policy perspective, what kind of audit and inspector general guidance currently exists to ferret out fraud in defective pricing matters? Well, Mana, back in 1993, the DOD inspector general came up with a list they called defective pricing indicators of fraud. And then, of course, the Defense Contract Audit Agency jumped on the bandwagon and added it to their contract manual. I commend these lists, these indicators of fraud to you that are developing compliance programs, because first, they flag the compliance landmines, and second, they will guide you in developing controls to target the riskiest behavior out there. There's a lot of examples on these uh, two lists by the DOD Inspector General and DCAA, but let me take it into three categories. First are the obvious examples, like high incidence of persistent defective pricing. If you keep withholding the data over a long period of time, you're going to get a fraud suit. The second are the scary examples, like continued failure to correct known system deficiencies. Unfortunately, the auditors really can't tell the difference between a good system and a bad system, and through an audit error, you may end up with a fraud suit. The third category are the hilarious examples. One of them is the undisclosed knowledge leading to significant cost increase, like the settlement of union negotiations. This is the Lockheed C-5 defective pricing case, where the judge crushed DCAA and said, you're just completely wrong. So. After losing, uh, this is sour grapes. They put it into their contract audit manual as an example of an indicator of fraud. But my favorite example is repeated use of unqualified personnel. Quite frankly, how can the auditors tell? Good point, David. I don't think anyone can answer that. In many defective pricing cases, 
ordinary contract disputes involving proposal negotiations and cost data may cross the line into the realm of fraud and FCA litigation. This is, of course, something that all contractors want to avoid. Can you provide some examples of litigation involving defective pricing and fraud that may illustrate the kinds of facts giving rise to fraudulent defective pricing actions, as well as some of the warning signs that such an action may be on the way? Sure, Jason. Let me give you four examples. One are phony cost accounts. In one case, Foster Wheeler thought it was a good idea to come up with an account called miscellaneous contingency. But when people looked behind that account, there were no parts. There were no purchase items, no material at all. You know, it was just made up. That's a good way to start a fraud case. A second way is with unsupported costs. There was a contractor that came in and said during the negotiations with NASA, we have a 3% sales commission. Put it in their proposal. What does the contracting officer do? He says, show me the sales commission. I want to see it. And the contractor said, well, it's actually oral. We, we don't have a written contract. At the same time, the sales agent had sued the contractor in state court and said, give me my sales commission. And the contractor said, we don't owe you a dime. We don't have any contract with you. That was a problem. You can see why a fraud case came out of that. The third example is historical data. You know, if you withhold it, you're in trouble. You know, one case, the contractor had eight months of labor hour data and efficiency curves at its new facility, and it even performed its own analysis of this. They said, well, you know, it's not really cost or pricing data. The judge says, it sounds like cost or pricing data to me. This fraud suit's going to go forward. So turn over that historical data. The fourth example are inconsistencies during the negotiations. There was a change order negotiation, and the contractor came in and said, this is a good change order proposal. It's supported by actuals. And, of course, the contracting officer said, show me the actuals. Oh, oops, we don't have any actual cost data support. This is an estimate. Well, they get into court, and the judge said, you can't play both sides of the net. You can't have these inconsistent positions. Or my shorthand for that is contradictions kill. Thanks, David. Those are some useful examples and practical advice to go along with it. Let's turn now to the substantive aspects of establishing liability in TINA and FCA litigations. In both TINA and FCA actions, the government or the relator in an FCA case bears the burden of proving it's claimed by a preponderance of the evidence. David, would you tell us about the burden of proof in each type of action and explain the similarities between them? Sure, Mana. First, with TINA, it is a government claim under the Contract Disputes Act, and as such, the government bears the burden of proving you know, defective pricing. And as you say, that's by preponderance of evidence, which means uh, you need at least 51% of the evidence. That burden is slightly alleviated by a presumption. It was first created by the courts, and then it's put into statute that says, we presume, agency, that you relied upon the cost or pricing data, and we presume that it increased the price. Why is that? Well, what else do you have to negotiate with in a sole source context? That was the rationale behind it. So ultimately, the government has to prove all elements of defective pricing 
they have a presumption on reliance and causation, but they bear the ultimate burden of proof if the contractor comes back with any rebuttal. False Claims Act, the statute itself makes it clear that the government or plaintiff has the burden of proof. Some members of the Department of Justice have argued that there is a presumption of damages in False Claims Act cases when they are alleging Dina. That is inconsistent with the statute, which expressly states the government, the plaintiff, shall prove all elements, including damages. It's also inconsistent with some of the case law that says there is no presumption of fraud. That's been our experience in FCA cases as well. Thanks, David and Mona. So defective pricing and FCA actions have different elements of proof, but there's significant overlap. To understand how liability can be established in an FCA defective pricing litigation, it's important to first understand the elements of proof in defective pricing cases. David, can you lay this groundwork for us? I'll be glad to, Jason. Let me start with the Defense Contract Audit Manual. I'm not here to do advertisements or marketing for the DCAA Contract Audit Manual, but in this case, it's actually helpful. In particular, the audit manual has collected the case law and distilled it into five points of defective pricing. And the audit manual says the government needs to prove all of these points to have a successful, effective, defective pricing case. First, cost or pricing data. The data needs to be factual, verifiable data and not judgments. Second, reasonable availability. The data must be available prior to price agreement, essentially the handshake. And what happens after you shake hands on the price agreement doesn't matter for defective pricing. Number three, and most importantly, there's no disclosure and no government knowledge. TINA is a disclosure statute, and if there's disclosure or if the government knows, that's the end of the TINA case. Number four, detrimental reliance. The government has to rely to its detriment on the defective cost or pricing data. Such as the United Technologies case, the judge said, I'm hard-pressed to understand how the government could rely upon cost or pricing data it never looked at. Number five, causation. The defective pricing has to cause an increase in the price. If there's no increase in the price, the government's not harmed, and that's the end of the defective pricing case. Great. So those five points help set the stage for our next point. If a plaintiff bases its FCA case upon TINA violations, the plaintiff must generally prove those five elements of a defective pricing claim as a prerequisite to prevailing in the FCA suit, and they must also establish the FCA elements of liability. So a TINA violation does not automatically prove fraud, nor does an FCA case necessarily depend upon proof of defective pricing. But some facts that would defeat a claim of defective pricing may also refute FCA allegations. So, David, would you describe for us some of the types of facts that may bear upon different elements of proof and those that can affect the outcome of both TINA and FCA actions? Thanks, Bonna. As you point out, you can have a False Claims Act case without defective pricing, and the Foster Wheeler case is an example that could have been both, but they ultimately decided it on just False Claims Act. 
But when you look at these specific elements, there's two categories I want to address. The first is what I call the layered burden of proof. This is where the Department of Justice comes into a False Claims Act case and says there's a TINA violation. That false certificate gives us the right to accuse you of fraud. In those cases where the False Claims Act case hinges upon a TINA violation, a false certificate, the government has to prove both a TINA violation and a False Claims Act violation. So it's a double burden. And to illustrate that, one case is the Allison case. This is not the famous Allison case that went to the Supreme Court, but the piece of it that stopped at the Sixth Circuit. And at the Sixth Circuit, the allegation was that there were some change orders and they were going to generate future productivity savings. The judges on the panel said, wait a minute, future? Sounds like predictions. That's not cost or pricing data. And if it's not cost or pricing data, the TINA claim fails and the False Claims Act case fails. Another example is the United Technologies Sikorsky case. In that one, the government came in and alleged both False Claims Act violations and defective pricing. The response was wait a minute, you failed to prove non disclosure of the material cost. In this case, it was the bill of materials. They couldn't show that the government didn't already have it in their hands. Once the government lost on disclosure of the Bill of Materials, they lost the False Claims Act element too. So when you have these compounded False Claims Act and TINA cases, the government has to prove both a TINA violation and a False Claims Act violation, and if they don't, they lose both. The second category is the overlapping elements of proof. Now. There are different elements for a TINA case and a False Claims Act case, but sometimes you can piggyback, or what I call recycling of your evidence and your theories. So for defective pricing, you have cost or pricing data. For False Claims Act, you have objective falsity. So keep in mind that the facts that may show that there are judgments or predictions, like future savings from change orders, those are not cost or pricing data, and they are not objectively false. So you may disprove both elements with one set of facts. A second area under overlapping elements of proof is government knowledge. Government knowledge is certainly a defense in a TINA case. It wipes it out. In a False Claims Act, it may show that there was no intent, no knowing violation, because the contractor thought the government knew and they weren't pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. So government knowledge may not only defeat the TINA claim, but also defeat the intent element of an FCA case. A third area would be reliance and materiality. Reliance, of course, an element of defective pricing. Materiality, as Jason and Mana have often covered uh, in these podcasts and elsewhere, an element of False Claims Act. If the government didn't care about the cost or pricing data, if they didn't rely upon it, it raises a serious issue. How could it be material? Finally, causation and causation. It sounds kind of like a law firm. Uh, you have causation and defective pricing and causation and false claims act. 
you have to prove it in both. And so if you can disprove causation, obviously it's the government's burden. But if you have facts that show there was no impact on the price, then you've got a good show of killing both the TINA claim and the FCA claim. So when defective pricing cases take the plunge into the FCA realm, a variety of procedural conundrums may arise. One significant issue is how to deal with parallel proceedings. David, can you address why or why not the parties might want to seek a stay of the defective pricing litigation when TINA and FCA actions are proceeding in parallel? Well, first, Jason, let me say to our audience, I hope none of you have the nightmare of having parallel TINA and FCA cases. It's awful. Maybe it's exciting for the lawyers, but it's terrible for the contractors. So let me address first the stay of proceedings. When you have parallel FCA and defective pricing litigations, the Department of Justice may try to step in and heavy shoe the defective pricing litigation. They may say, you have to stop this because it's interfering with our False Claims Act case. In those cases, you need to fight back as a contractor. First, the Supreme Court says there is a stay of litigation only in rare instances, and that is the applicable case law for the Board of Contract Appeals and the other courts as well. Second, the Contract Disputes Act gives contractors a specific right to a forum that has specialized government contracts experience. It's built into the statute, and it is the place where most effective pricing cases overwhelmingly have been tried. So you want access to that specific expertise to inform the district court that's uh, looking at a parallel False Claims Act proceeding. Third, the Contract Disputes Act outcome may be dispositive in the False Claims Act case. As we've already talked about with Allison, they found that there was no cost or pricing data. It was a judgment and therefore no TINA violation. That would knock out the False Claims Act suit as well. And let me uh, address one additional area, and that would be evidentiary factors. Please don't go to sleep on me. There's some meaningful lessons learned here. The evidence from the defective pricing case may be extremely pertinent to the False Claims Act action that's moving in parallel. Let me give you a couple of examples. In one case, the Sixth Circuit said, yes, we have a False Claims Act case. Yes, it involves the same witnesses, the same documents, the same theories, but we don't think there's collateral estoppel. So we're not going to kill the FCA case on the basis of issue preclusion. However, we are quite persuaded that there is evidence not only that the Board of Contract Appeals found, but this in the record that there were competitive forces and there were market tests between the competitors. And the result was that there was no inflation of fair market value, no damages. So the evidence from the Board of Contract Appeals case can be relevant and even persuasive in a False Claims Act case. Another example that's more procedural, but it's one in which Jason and I worked a parallel defective pricing and FCA action. In the defective pricing case, 
after the army witnesses crumbled due to lack of facts to support their case, the army trial counsel said, you know what, we're going to withdraw the final decision. And the contracting officer withdrew the final decision on the merits. And then the judge in the False Claims Act case says, you know what, I bet the legal memo that led to the withdrawal of the contracting officer's final decisions is probably relevant. Government turned that over. And shortly thereafter, amazingly, the Department of Justice begged to settle the case at pennies on the dollar. So the impact procedurally of starting a defective pricing case and then ending it prematurely, if it is the basis for the False Claims Act case, then you may have two cases to go away for the price of one. So thank you. Well, thanks, David, for those war stories. Um, That's all for this episode. We want to thank David for joining us to discuss the links between defective pricing and fraud and why garden variety defective pricing may grow into an FCA investigation or litigation. Be on the lookout for a forthcoming briefing paper on defective pricing in the False Claims Act in the Thomson Reuters briefing papers, co-authored by David Bodenheimer, our Kroll and Mooring colleague, Brian Tully McLaughlin, and our very own Jason Crawford. In the meantime, if you have any questions, David can be reached at 202-624-2713, Jason at 202-624-2562, and I can be reached in Los Angeles at 213-443-5563. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca.com.